Tricast on this Sunday evening. Uh, with me tonight, we have the usual face of Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And our special guest tonight, we have Khaldun Khalil. Khalili, sorry. Khalil, yeah. Khalil, sorry, I was right first time. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> oh, today is going off so well. <laughs> Good start, Matt. Good yeah, start. I know, I know. So, uh, Khaldun, uh, tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, what's your thing? Uh, well, I uh, fight, write for role-playing games. Uh, you know, I write for Vampire the Masquerade. I, I've written for some Cthulhu books and some, you know, freelance Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, mostly I've written on on Vampire and uh, Chronicles of Darkness, uh, the old Vampire line, uh, after they uh, you know closed down Masquerade for a few years. Uh, but now I mostly work work on uh, V five Vampire Five Fifth Edition. Like V five is very different to like the the original Vampire the Masquerade. It feels like almost like a reboot, but still maintaining continuity um would that be a fair assessment of v5 um yeah i mean i guess it's a reboot in the sense that uh the lore is still there but very much uh it's not really uh in the spotlight anymore so the lore is there and you can delve into the lore but it's a lot more approachable to new players uh because they don't have to read a mountain of lore i, I remember uh when uh, Vampire was in its heyday in the 90s, you'd walk into any role-playing game store and there'd be an entire wall of Vampire supplements, uh, you know, sometimes with, you know, strange names. And it would be hard to make heads or tail of it, I'm sure, if you were a new player. V- V5 really doesn't um, put the lore front and center. So so in a sense, it's it's a reboot in, in that sense, in the in its presentation and themes. But uh, but technically, it's it's still the same game. Yeah. As well, um, I'm, a, I'm a massive World of Darkness fan, but I mean, Matthias, and so could you kind of, as well, suppose some of our audience aren't as up to date with V5. So could you explain, like, though, what V5 is and, like, the, its background and basis? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, Vampire the Masquerade, the fifth edition, basically, it, it takes the central conceit of Vampire the Masquerade that you're, you are playing the vampire and that you're fighting against, you know, this internal beast to retain your humanity. Um, that's kind of the core gameplay. Uh, and you're trying to hide yourself and vampiric society from mortals at large uh, while you try to, you know, survive and prosper. And in 5th edition, uh, one of the major twists is that uh, there's secret governmental agencies that know about vampires and are actively hunting them across the world. So keeping yourself a secret is more important than it had been in the past, where it was kind of um, almost a side project, uh, keeping yourself hidden, unless that was specifically the focus of the game you were playing. Uh, but now it's a it's an issue throughout the game and has more of a spotlight, as well as uh, in older editions of Vampire the Masquerade, there was something kind of called the um, the War of Ages, which was basically about the young vampires versus the old vampires. In 5th edition, the spotlight's firmly on the young vampires, and the older vampires have mostly um, exited the scene. Uh, there's several reasons for that in the plot of the game, for why the older vampires are no longer, you know, in your face, uh, basically controlling everything. So basically, like, you know, the game essentially sets up a massive power vacuum. 
Correct. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, one thing I really liked with V5 was like, oh, it's when I said reboot, I suppose like it reboots the system in many ways. It's a, essentially a very much a different system, especially in terms of feeding and, well, before it's like a, a blood pool where you kind of tracked how many blood mm. points you had and like feed, like no feeding and uh, like like using abilities here it's more about the need to feed rather than the actual feeding itself yes yeah i mean i would say that um i'd say older the original vampire the masquerade when it came out in the 90s it was groundbreaking uh, groundbreaking thematically uh, groundbreaking in the type of role play experience it was asking you as a player and a storyteller to produce at the table but mechanically it was very much an old school system. It was very combat heavy. I mean, to be honest, it was basically just shadow run with D10s. So it was very, com it, it, I mean, mechanically, I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, so it really didn't break any ground mechanically, except maybe the blood pool system in some way. But yeah, now V5 is a complete overhaul of the system. It no longer focuses on combat. Uh, combat is uh, basically, you're basically supposed to be over with combat in three rounds, basically. And, you know, whoever has the edge is basically the one who takes the game in a sense. Um, so that individual discipline powers are now a lot more impactful because they have to basically make, make you know, make a difference in just a few rounds. Uh, and also, yes, as you said, the blood pool is gone. Now hunger is, um, is done in a more... Um, what I would say is a much more streamlined way. And uh, right, the way the kind of way that hunger can come upon you uh, without you um, without you being ready for it. You can no longer gauge it. It's no longer a mini game hunger. Now hunger is something that can suddenly sneak upon you. Uh, just, you know, you make a bad roll on a hunger, hunger roll. You've been using disciplines all night without any problem, didn't get any hungrier. Then suddenly you, you feel the hunger come upon you as you've, you know, pushed it a little, pushed your luck a little too far. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, and that, which I feel is, more in line with modern RPGs is a mechanic that enforces the themes, which in older RPGs was which is not really something that was done with most games. So how does how does that work? I, I'm a complete um, noob when it comes to uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Um, I play D and D, and I've done a bit of Call of Cthulhu, uh, and that's pretty much pretty much it. Um, how does that work? So you you make a bad roll, you become hungry. Does that mean how, how does that how does that work how does that make you sort of make the character uh react well i mean it it depends so uh strictly on the hunger system uh basically what you have is something called hunger dice as your hunger rating increases um technically it's from zero to five uh you swap out dice in your die pools because as i said it's basically you know still still kind of like Shadowrun. uh you're using d10 die pools and as you get hungrier you're basically swapping out a number of dice in all your die pools equal to your hunger rating. So if your hunger is uh, three, you would swap in three dice to the die pool uh, that you'd have to mark specially. And then as those, and if those dice come up successes or failures, successes or failures, uh, then you know some things can be triggered, uh, messy criticals, bestial failures, and that can um, that can play itself out in the role playing. Uh, so if if you succeed on a roll. Uh, even if it's a critical success, but it was your hunger dice that let you succeed on that roll, then the you will succeed, but you will have basically relied on your vampiric nature to succeed. So that could threaten the masquerade, that kind of thing. 
Uh, and then obviously it can also trigger, you know, your specific compulsions for, you know, um, for your clans and such. Uh, and there are also other systems that reinforce it uh, thematically as well, not not just the hunger system. Yeah, because it bakes in the whole kind of vampiric need to feed into the system where before right. it's before it was more of like you know, a resource tracking management system. Right. And I found like vampire, especially in the early days, it could either be like a vampiric version of EastEnders all the way up. <laughs> All the way up to Avengers with a blood fetish. Right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of games. I mean, uh, my very earliest vampire games that I got to play in, because I, I, I'm a forever, I'm still a forever DM, so very rarely would I get to ever play. But I remember the very first vampire games I got to play in, I think like two or three characters had katanas and trench coats. So. Ah, uh, the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the, the katana, katana and trench coat was very much a thing for the 90s and also in like it's it was massively just i think partly because of um underworld films yeah yeah underworld blade the yeah, crow exactly yeah and and like no it's just like very much an aesthetic choice of which kind of blended itself very well to vampire unfortunately stuck there yes so like so how, how did you become involved in writing for vampire uh yeah that's a that's a tough question i guess i'm not 100 percent sure basically uh <laughs> uh my first book for vampire the masquerade um was i believe for the second edition or maybe revised it was in 2000 i believe it was cairo by night i was a project consultant uh on that and i wrote a few things um in the book uh though, though i'm only credited as a, a project consultant uh, and for that one, uh, you know, they needed somebody who knew something about um, Cairo, obviously. And uh, and back then it was, uh, I don't know if it was easier, but it was more common to, you know, just be in touch with the people writing the games. Uh, and not in a social media way, but, you know, on the phone, at conventions. Um, you know, I think I met Justin Achille uh, back then at a, at a vampire LARP, uh, though I don't think he was playing in the LARP, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, so I just got the call um, from the authors and uh, they asked me to, you know, consult on the book because, uh, you know, I, I know about Cairo and Arabic, uh, Arabic culture and uh, Muslim culture. Um, and then from there, uh, it was just a matter of, net, you know, using my network and meeting people and talking to them and, you know, and doing the writing. You know, that's that's often the most important thing is is if you do the writing. Um, even if it's not really good at first, if you get it in on time, that can account for a lot. Yeah, I mean, if, an editor, if editors have got something to work on, they're happy. It's when yeah. editors don't have anything to work on, that's when they get a bit, you know, grumpy. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, like, I found, like, like from my experience as a like, freelance writer and journalist, like, you know, I've I, I raised my early stuff way back in, like, you know, the early uh, 2010s, I think, oh, I could I could do that so much better now, but because I was I was meeting every deadline, editors were coming back to me said okay and give me more stuff because I was hitting a deadline that wasn't letting them down and just I think that counts just as much as writing ability now just having that uh, ability to hit the deadlines and do what the editor says. Right. Yes. Now now I can miss deadlines. <laughs> I never say yes to that. I'll never admit to that. So, uh, what's it says the black hand behind you? What does that? What's the reference to that then? 
Oh yes. Uh, so uh, V five. There's a of this of the sex in V five. Um, the uh, one of the sex in Vampire the Masquerade that's always um, always been there um, and has been not necessarily core to the game in the past, but has either been antagonist but usually playable is uh, the Sabbat, the quote unquote you know evil vampires. Um, and so we just released uh, two books, actually, uh, the V5 book for the Sabbat. It's called Sabbat the Black Hand. Uh, and that's the renegade official uh, Sabbat. That's just an antagonist book. Not a monster manual, but really a storyteller's guide for how to bring the Sabbat into your chronicle and how your players who aren't playing Sabbat uh, would interact with them. Uh, then recently they allowed for V5 products on the, the Storyteller's Vault, which is the community content. And so I and a few other authors got together and, and we produced um, The Black Hand Playing the Sabbat, which is the, the cover behind me uh, by, uh, by Mark Kelly, who's you know, an incredible cover artist. Uh, and for that, we basically took the foundation of the V5 book, the official book, and made um, you know, a, a book for fans and the communities if they wish to play Sabbat. Because the, in my experience, you know, having played Vampire for, for so long, uh, Sabat fans, uh, you know, they love to play Sabat. Like that's why they cut to come to Vampire for. And uh, we felt that, you know, we could we could present them something that would hopefully, you know, scratch that itch. I mean, uh, how would you describe the Sabat? I mean, there's kind of so many different kind of interpretations of who and mm -hmm. what they are. How would you describe them? Um, well, yeah, that's tough. I mean, I guess in their modern, I mean, classically, the Sabat is in some sense um, a cult. It is a uh, organization, uh, you know, um, of a religious organization in a sense of vampires that have totally shed their humanity and oppose the other vampires who wish to keep pretending uh, that they're just dead humans, that they're not something completely different. And the, they're fooling themselves that the elder hidden vampires aren't controlling everything. And since vampires are better than humans, the hu vampire should be in control of everything anyway. That's kind of the basic core of the Sabbat. Um, I guess in the, the newest edition, uh, they are less interested in the politics and the kind of um, status quo, this kind of Cold War situation they'd been with the other vampires for so long. They're now in um, what I would consider to be something we can all um, appreciate. They're in this mode of we've got to do something now. Uh, it's too late you know, to wait. We can't do piecemeal measures anymore. Uh, you know, in our introduction to the book, uh, we have a line that says, you know, if it's the end of the world, what are we waiting for? Which, which I feel is a line that all millennials can um, appreciate, uh, because really, uh, what the Sabbat is facing in their point of view is uh, what you know, Gehenna. They're, they're facing a, a rising up of these ancient vampires that are going to kill them all, all the younger vampires, and who knows what they're going to do after that so in the face of that um what wouldn't you be willing to do in a sense to uh, you know save the world yeah i mean like uh i remember playing like the first edition um vampire the masquerade where the sabbat were purely an antagonistic organization then it kind of as uh editions went on they became a playable faction but then with v5 is the made the decision of kind of rolling them back and being too purely antagonistic so why was that why did they kind of just when the, the Renegade's official release be purely a sort of GM handbook rather than a playable faction? 
well, I mean, I I'm not there when they make those decisions, but I would say that from, from you know from my point of view, I would say that it's because V5 very much gets back into the roots of uh, Vampire the Masquerade, which is the battle uh, to retain your humanity, that kind of personal horror story. I mean, the the politics. I mean, I think the tagline for V5 is actually a game of political horror. Um, so the politics still figure importantly, and, and as you play Vampire, often you can kind of ignore the mortals on some level once you've <laughs> insulated yourself from the mortal world. But with some of the mechanics, not just hunger, but the touchstone mechanics and the conviction mechanics uh, and the chronicle tenant mechanics, they've basically recentered the idea that this is a game of you uh, and your humanity and basically what you're willing to do to uh, get along in the vampiric world and how much you're willing to sacrifice humanity. So the Sabbat, which follow paths of enlightenment, which are intrinsically inhumane, don't really, that's not really the game they're playing. So they don't want to basically, this is strictly my opinion, I don't think they wanted to dilute the core gameplay experience with the Sabbat as a a playable faction. That that would be my, my guess. Yeah, because very much V5 kind of recenters the whole point of Vampire the Masquerade in the sense of kind of refocusing it back onto the personal horror of you're a vampire, how, what are you going to do to kind of keep your humanity alive? And again, like the uh, the, the touchstones is kind of re centers the play on that and focuses them that they need to keep them alive and present and to retain their humanity. And I mean, I, I mean, I've read the um, the Black Hand source book uh, you uh, worked on, and that's fantastic. I mean, the quality of it. I mean, when you say like it's a community storytelling vault content, but it's really professionally done. I mean, like the the design of it, the artwork and the layout, and just it's not just a bunch of PDF pages all typewritten. This is, which is, I mean, especially when it's just someone working on it, this is like really looks like a professional. Well, as it is, it is a professional uh, piece of content that's out there. Yeah, I mean, um, well, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have been getting that feedback a lot. I mean, um, I think that's uh, partly because. Uh, we got Mark Kelly, um, uh, who was very kind to uh, do the cover for our book. And so obviously just from the jump, it, it looks like a lot of the other, you know, official products because it has uh, that, you know, quality cover. Uh, and we did our best to, you know, use the same um, fonts and layouts. The Storyteller right. Vault has, um, for the most part, the templates and art packs that they give as a, as a default are, are very good. And so just from that, from those bones, I think you're, if you put in the time, uh, and it is a lot of time, you can yeah. um, put things together. And uh, I know I, I did the art layout and the development and, and all that. Um, and I actually have some uh, professional experience with that myself, uh, you know, from desktop publishing in the 90s and early uh, early aughts. Um, so, uh, you know, my first professional jobs in the energy industry were uh, with newsletters writing about, you know, mm-hmm. oil and natural gas and that kind of thing. So I was able to kind of brush up those old skills, uh, see what InDesign looks like now, uh, and uh, you know put put it to use. So yeah, we we definitely wanted to deliver a book that, if it was printed, uh, you know you'd be happy to have it on your shelf next to you know the other Sabat book or the Camaria or you know the core book and such. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Matt. Uh, it's just because, uh, again, uh, I'm completely naive to the whole <laughs> sort of kind of world that it, that it is. Um, now we, we've talked to a few people about Mage um, 
love uh, that game. So, is you know, you're talking about um, keeping your humanity and sort of the masquerade is sort of obviously not showing that you are a vampire, which seems similar along the lines of, you know, a mage uh, where, you know, you don't want to be seen as being uh, a mage. You, you've got to hide it. Um, you know, is there sort of kind of a connection between them or are they in the same world, aren't they? Are they in the same <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, okay. I mean, there's there's technically no fifth edition of Mage. Well, not technically. There is no fifth edition of Mage uh, out currently. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with that that line. Um, but yes, uh, Mage classically is one of the World of Darkness, um, you know, playable uh, splats or you know arenas. Is there? Yeah, but- do they ever have any sort of like uh, interaction between the like you know cross pollination between mage and, and vampires? Uh... Uh, yes, I mean in V five that doesn't really seem to be a focus of the game. The what what is what's called you know what's called crossover in World of Darkness. It's very very classically called crossover, and there are lots of heated arguments about whether crossover is good. And different editions of the game promoted crossover to different levels. Uh, earlier, they were very kind of downplayed crossover, and all the different splats had basically kind of antagonist blocks. So, like a mage in the first edition, in the first few editions of Vampire, I think it would basically be this is you know the stat block for a mage. Like, don't bother buying the mage book. Uh, but obviously, once they had you know mage books and lots of mage books, they they tried to do the crossover thing. You know, uh, I would say to limited success. I, I never really saw very much crossover. Um, because usually the mechanics were so different. I think Chronicles of Darkness, the where Vampire the Requiem and uh, Mage the Awakening and all that is, that does it a little better because it's more of a unified system mechanically. Um, I don't know. Um, I can't really talk about the other World of Darkness um, books that I, I've worked on other than Vampire because you know none of them are out yet. Uh, but I don't really, I really can't say how well the mechanics will drive together uh, in a going forward. Yeah, well, I remember like playing like the like V twenty M twenty and all that. And whilst essentially they are the same system, the storyteller system, but when it starts diverging, is in their respective powers. Like you know, the vampires have disciplines, the mages have the spheres, and at that point, it starts getting very flaky. Um, and yeah, and like you know, it can be done with a lot of care and thought. Um, I played a mage in a Wood Doctor's LARP way back in the day, and that got interesting when the character had forces and couldn't just fire at will. That became, became very interesting for everyone else, um, especially the vampires. Now, but again, it just became a bit... And Now, what I would say is thematically they are similar, like... Uh, vampires have the masquerade to hide behind. Mages have the kind of paradox so they can't really overtly display their powers, otherwise they get hit by the paradox um, hammer. And werewolves, like werewolf, the masquerade, they have the um, their own form of obfuscation. Like, no, basically, if if a hu- if a human sees the like, veil, no, uh, the thank you, yes, completely blanks on that. Yeah, basically, if if like, a normal human sees a werewolf in full Krynos form, in a full werewolf form, they just go over and scream and think, "Oh, it's just, it's just, it's not real. It's not real. It can't be real." So, the, so thematically, they are similar, and mechanically, at a certain level, they are similar. But their respective powers just start going off in different directions. At that point, there's no, it, you can't really. I think, as I understand it, Chronicles of Darkness kind of baked in. The crossovers from the very beginning 
would that be a fair assessment? Or at least uh, their, their interoperability? Yes, yeah. I mean, um, later on, they would uh, bake in more crossover. I think they actually made a campaign which was very crossover yeah. heavy. Um, yeah. yeah, so that, that was that was a bit later on. But yes, from the outset, the mechanics were meant to be totally um, interchangeable. There was one core book for all the lines. So if you wanted to play Vampire or Werewolf, you, you had to buy the World of Darkness book to get the, the core mechanics. Um, so yeah, so I would agree with that. The, the interoperability uh, was was there, but if you as a storyteller uh, wanted to make a game that uh, was crossover you know, heavy or had different kinds of players from different um, areas or splats, you would really have to give that some you know, careful thought. Very much so. I mean, I think the only game where they kind of really, especially in the classic Worlds of Darkness games, like the M20, Maze 20, and so on, is in the Technocracy Reloaded book, where basically all the other supernatural elements were targets for the technocracy. And that way, you were, that wasn't so much a crossover, but target practice for the technocracy, essentially. Mm. Because they were on a hunt for any reality deviants, and that included vampires, werewolves, and so on. But yeah, um, but again, like, how did you become involved in V5 like, uh, itself? How did that come about? Um... Well, that's a good question too. I um, I think I met. Okay, well, this is okay. This is gonna sound weird, okay? But I was living in Los Angeles for a while, and I was dropping my son off at summer camp. Uh, he went to he was going this you know uh, comedy summer camp um, in Hollywood. So I was dropping him off at summer camp in Hollywood where I was living at the time. And as I was after I dropped him off across the street. I saw uh, Martin Erickson sitting on a street corner um, talking to a friend of his, I guess. Uh, it was very early in the morning, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't have to be at work for a while. So I just crossed the street and I said, you know, hey, Martin. And I think we'd met in the past, I think, at a convention or something. And so we just sat down and started chatting. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I think through Martin, I met, you know, everybody else, uh, Kareem and Johanna and... Um, a few other the v5 people uh you know uh i think jason carl uh, who wasn't i don't think he is actually working for uh paradox at that point uh so yeah it was uh so you know chance and uh going to conventions uh and then just chatting um and you know the that that was that you know um and then i think the first thing i wrote for v5 was uh for the, uh, I guess for the Camarilla book, um, they asked me to uh, take a look over the Bono Hakim stuff before it was published. So, I mean, it was I wasn't really a sensitivity reader, but I gave them some notes here and there on on that stuff. They they took most of them, if not all. I think it, it turned out okay, you know. Uh, well, not okay. It turned out very good, uh, especially compared to you know some of the stuff from the old Asimites. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, officially, the first thing I ever wrote for. Um, V5 was the Camarilla book rewrites, actually. I rewrote the Gehenna War section and some meta plot about the beck the beckoning and the Gehenna War and all that. Yeah, because I, I do know the, the Camarilla source book kind of got a bit of luck was initially released, but to mm -hmm. their credits, it, um, Paradox took action, basically kind of just cancelled the, cancelled the book, rather kind of, you know, brought the book back in, rewrote it, and then reissued it again with their apologies. Mm -hmm. I think that was a you know, that was a, you know, well-managed essentially. Yep, we need to redo this. 
And yeah, unheard of. Unheard of. I mean, I don't think yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard of that ever happening. Um, in you know the how many decades I've been playing uh, RPGs. Uh, yeah, I mean, they even had um, uh, an editorial review board. I was part of an editorial review board that reviewed both the Anarch and the Camarilla book. Uh, basically, we all went through. We all separately went through the books and then you know submitted our editorial notes, uh, which you know I'm. Which I, I don't know about everyone else's, but I know some of mine were implemented in in um, at least the Camarilla book, not not really the Anarch book, because uh, I don't the Anarch book had a few things that you know they were concerned about, but for the most part, I feel the Anarch book was didn't get any much n nowhere near as much heat as the Camarilla. Yeah, book, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, um, is it worth mentioning just like the scale of it? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, because like they were basically they were referencing real world atrocities as as basically being the results of vampire manipulation, and it was untasteful is the best way to I can politely put it. But like I said, the paradox did take action, brought the book back in, redid it, and reissued it. Yes, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I have no idea about the behind the scenes or the before all that. I can only speak of you know the reaction because that yeah. was uh, what I was involved with. But I can say that the you know, the reaction is very good, uh, and I think that you know most experienced writers uh, who work and developers who work with you know dark material will tell you that you know you can talk about the monsters, but you should never excuse you know the real world monsters of you know the humans doing bad things. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it must like you know, as, as I recall, I mean, no, barring a few exceptions. Like you know, again, like in the generally world doctor's approach to being like you no know, trustees and real world monsters has been that wasn't like vampires or werewolves and they're just no, that was just evil people being evil. Yes, I think by revised they had um perfected that formula of yeah. you know vampires and, and definitely in uh Chronicles of Darkness with the Vampire of the Requiem, yeah. they perfected this formula that vampires will take advantage of human atrocities, but they are not the uh perpetrators or the originators of those thoughts. That's strictly with the humans. And personally, from a you know writing horror context, it's always scarier when a human does something terrible because they don't have the excuse of, well, the beast made me do it. Like, well, no, you're you know you you don't have that. you don't have a beast. Yeah, very much. I think like it's like having someone that takes advantage of it is, you know, you can reference real world elements, but it never excuses it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And again, like, how did you become involved in like the the the, the Sabat book? Like, oh well, um, I'd been speaking with um, people uh, at you know White Wolf, uh, I, I, as it was back then, um, since the very early days of V five before the book came out about you know what the sabbat would be like um in the new edition and writing a book for them about it and the such uh, in some capacity um you know since back then so i think um my name had always been in the mix uh, of you know potential writers for the book uh so when it finally came down time to to write the book uh you know it was one of the first times in in my career where someone called me <laughs> Uh, so they, they, you know, they, they said, we're, you know, we're going to do Save this that experience, huh? <laughs> Save that experience. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't happen often. It doesn't matter how long you've been writing, especially in, or, or freelancing. I mean, yeah. um, you know, the, the quickest way to starve in writing or freelance is to develop a pick me attitude like that kind of, well, if they don't pick me, I'm not the best for the job. Well, no, no, no. Trust me. Like 
people appreciate when you come to them and say, I would like to work on this. Not only does it show your interest and all that, but you know, people are busy. They're not going to remember um, you, even if you don't have a very unique name like my own. <laughs> yeah, well, I can speak like I'm a freelance writer and journalist myself, uh, write for the BBC, Computer Weekly, do a fair bit in cybersecurity. And I think I can I'll say five times I've, yeah. I've written hundreds, literally hundreds, hundreds of articles in the past five years. Five times I've been asked to do some for someone. Yeah, that's about right. That sounds about like that's about the right ratio. Five to like a billion. Yeah. 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 And it just yeah, I can't you can't. You can't. You have to be out there getting, hi, do you want this? Hi, can I do this for you? And you have to really kind of get over that sort of is that, is that how you Because I've never, th- I've never thought about it to be honest. But that's your, that's your livelihood and stuff. Is it you just yeah. sort of kind of do you go out? Do you go out on business meals and stuff like that? Do you wine and dine people <laughs> to get business? I wish I could build that bill, build that as expense. No, um, <laughs> I, I got, I email people. I will kind of, uh, well, I'm derailing too much from, uh, but, but so this, this is, uh, is for you, Caldoun. But like, I will email people. I will say, hi, I've got this idea for an article uh, and kind of give them a brief pitch of like, no, what it'll be about, who I'll speak to, and are you interested? And that's pretty much the general. Occasionally I'll kind of speak to, and I, get, I will email and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to this event. Would you like some interviews from these people? Like, for example, if I'm going to, in, in November last year, I was at a World's Comic Con where I spoke to um, the... The actors who played these pilots in Star Wars, the Star Wars film, developer pilots, and said, "Listen, these people are here. Would you be interested in a conversation with them?" And actually, one person said, "Yeah, actually, I would actually." So that's how it comes about typically. But I can't just say, I can't just basically sit by my keyboard waiting for the email to ping. Going, "Hi, we would like you to write an article." Because no, <laughs> I'd yeah. starve. Exactly. How, how about how about how does that kind of reflect on y- yourself, Caldoun? Well, I mean, starting out, it's very much a face-to-face thing. Like, people want to see you. They want to get an idea of you um, for r- RPG writing, at least in my experience. I'm not quite sure what it is now uh, as far as, you know, if getting your start. But for me, it was really conventions were kind of a game changer. I- I'd written here and there, um, you know, as a hobby while I did, you know, my full- full-time work. But then once I started getting into conventions and, you know, wanted to get into writing uh, more as a full in a more full-time basis, that's when really I, I saw more work, you know, once I made those personal connections. And then after that, once I, I know people on a personal level, then yes, I can, you know, email them or Slack them or DM them, you know, whatever is available to me. Um, you know, as long as you, you know, as long as you're not, you know, tweeting uh, <laughs> about it out in the open air, then yeah, it's, it's, it's usually... Um, any any basis to you know get the work yeah i think until until anything's published everything is under nda you just do not talk yeah. about it especially yeah, if, especially if you can i've just got this great content no can't say anything can't do anything <laughs> yeah i mean it was uh, i think back in the day it was a little looser especially yeah. when you were just talking to other professionals in the business or other freelancers um now I definitely feel uh, as, you know, video game companies kind of come into um, the RPG space for those IPs and such. Um, and there have more of an impact on the culture of RPGs. Now, yes, now NDAs are completely sacrosanct. Like now, uh, you know, I can't, I don't even, 
Um, I don't know if can't's the right word, but I definitely don't risk talking to other authors or whatever. I have to be a lot more tight lipped. It was, it was more collegiate in the past where you'd be like, oh, I'm working on this. And, you know, you discuss things and figure things out, get ideas. Now it's much more siloed and it's much more about IP, um, which isn't a bad thing because the, you know, these companies are bringing a lot of resources into the gaming space that, you know, we never really, we, never, we didn't really have in the past, um, you know, RPGs are very much a, a tight margin business, uh, and the IPs were never really um, valued the way they should have been. Uh, but now, you know, you see companies like Paradox, uh, which you know value the World of Darkness IP. They value the BattleTech IP. Uh, you see the Shadowrun um, video games, which are you know so good. Uh, you know, the, the I they see how important and powerful. Not to mention Cyberpunk by the incredible you know Mike. Oh Punk, yeah, uh, which has been around forever. Um, as a game um, and is now finally, you know, finally getting um, the kind of um, accolades it deserves, um, you know, as as an idea, as a thought. Yeah, I've, I spoke to Mike Ponsmith way just after Cyberpunk 2077 was announced. So we're talking 20, early 2013. And it was just before the media blackout was came down from CD Projekt Reg. And... Apparently, he'd been approached several times by various video game companies, and for one reason, one reason or another, it just never happened. Sometimes they they approached him with ideas of like, "We'll just reskin a first-person shooter, so stick the Cyberpunk 2020." Apologies, everybody. Um, OBS just kind of went down there, and um, for unknown reasons decided it didn't want to reconnect so um i can only assume that the horrendous storms has had some effect on it but uh yeah we're back again and um we will finish off with pete who i think was talking about cyberpunk 20 uh 2022 no it wasn't 22 we're in 2022 oh my god what's going on oh my god my my brain just not not with it today and anyway she, anyway pete cyberpunk carry on yeah cyberpunk 2020 had been there've been several attempts to kind of translate into a video game most of them were kind of basically a risking job of an existing first person shooter and then slapping the cyberpunk 2020 brand on it as if hey it's a cyberpunk 2020 game but Mike Pondsmith, the creator of Cyberpunk 20, said, nope, nope, I do not want just a rebranding. That's not, no, it's, that's not what I want. It'd be just wrong. Now, but several companies did approach him with some really good ideas. I think the most prominent one was someone who kind of, who had came a really good idea. They'd start developing on it. And then about midway through the development, the head of the company that was developing this uh, Cyberpunk 2020 game Really got um, got um, papers from the American government telling them to re-enlist. So you had to basically rejoin the, uh, the army again. And that obviously completely can development for them. Um, but the, essentially being quiet. I mean, Cyberpunk V3 had, was a bit hit or mixed, to be fair. It didn't make the splash Mike Pondsmith had hoped for. And pretty much everything was quiet with, around Cyberpunk 2020 for several years. And then... This news came out from almost nowhere saying, hey, there's going to be a, a cyberpunk video game called 2077 released by the guys behind The Witcher 3, CD Projekt Red. And that kickstarted massive interest in the video games. I wrote an article about it for a magazine I cannot talk about because of contracts. Yay. And 
Uh, and then from that, they kind of got interested in the role-playing game again, which kind of we got Cyberpunk Red. So, yeah, it's been a massive interest in the Cyberpunk um, setting as a whole, really. I mean, have you played Cyberpunk 2077, uh, Yes, yeah, I've uh, I've played it uh, on PC. It was very good. I, I played through, uh, through it a few times. I thought the story elements were, you know, really interesting. You know, uh, I really love The Witcher 3. I thought that was probably one of the better video games I've, you know, ever played. Um, so I was really, I had very high expectations. And, you know, for... For the most part, I would say, uh, you know, they, they met it with the story elements, yeah, for, for Cyberpunk 2077. And they, uh, I feel they really captured most of the spirit of the RPG, but uh, as with most things, uh, you know, there's some things RPGs can do that, you know, video games cannot. Uh, and in a setting like Cyberpunk, uh, you know, the there's, especially in a setting like Cyberpunk, uh, it is very difficult to you know, program in all the different permutations uh, and possibilities in, in that kind of setting. So I thought the video game was about as good as it could be given the limit, limits of a video game. Do you think um, they overpromised with the video game and that's why you had um, so many issues uh, at launch? I have no idea. I mean, uh, I doubt it. I, I, I suspect the the major issue was, you know, mostly just technical and time. That that's how these things go. I I've been um, on the side involved with some video game development, and I can say that it um, it often comes down to you know a lot of ideas, a lot of uh, problems that prop that come up that you have to deal with eventually, and you just don't have the time or the money in the end to put in the future features at the same time you're squashing the bugs. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I'm not involved at all in CD Projekt Red, um, but my suspicion is that they wanted to release the game in 2020. And it's because they type like in 2020 and the name of the game and they kind of wanted to hit the kind of Christmas 2020 season. And so they kind of almost released it while still they were still in bug squashing mode. Uh, but I will say this, they absolutely nailed the aesthetic of Cyberpunk 2020, really. Like, it's like, it wasn't just like, you know, black and chrome. No, as yeah. quite a few Cyberpunk settings are really just like lots of black and lots of chrome. They've really kind of gone for a kind of almost psychedelic uh, yeah. neon-lit future. And I remember speaking to Mike Pondsmith uh, a few years ago, and he said like, there's a very specific aesthetic and tone to Cyberpunk. It's like basically walking out the bar uh, late at night um, when it's just after it's rained and going, so what now? And kind of the really kind of nailed that sort of kind of neon psychedelia of Cyberpunk 2020. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, it's good that he sort of, instead of just going with the first uh, computer game company he wanted to make, um, a game of his his RPG that he, he sort of waited for one that could probably do it justice. Granted, obviously, uh, all all bugs and stuff aside, you know uh, it is. And I've not played it yet because I was going to wait for all the bugs to get fixed and stuff. But um, um, it is uh, uh it is apparently a very good game when it when, when it works properly. <laughs> um, but it, you know you've got a lot of companies uh like Games Workshop and stuff. He'll just give their IP to anybody, and um, you know I personally think that damages your brand slightly. You know because you're just known as sort of having naff games and stuff. Like 
I, I talk about Games Workshop because, you know, they're not as bad now, but they used to be really bad. <laughs> like, literally just give it to anybody. And they had some really naff stuff. Naff movies, naff sort of games. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you really need to sort of be picky with uh, who who takes on your IP. Have you played any of the V5 games at all? On the, like, so there's bl- the Blood Hunt uh, yeah, the only one I've actually played, the only V5 video game other than they had this Vampire Jam recently, actually, where they had community content, um, people make video games. And a couple of those were very good. Um, uh, I played one where it was kind of a um, almost like city resource manager with like you had a coterie and it was very political and had timers. It was it reminded me of Cult Simulator from uh, Steam. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, a game I, I like. I think it was called Praxis. And that, that was very good. But as far as the uh, official releases, uh, I actually haven't played any of them except um, uh, of the new games, Blood Hunt, the Battle Royale, which I like. I like Battle Royale, so that's perfect for me. Uh, you know, play Nosferatu in a Battle Royale, sure. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, just so you guys know, you'll have to reinstall it now, uh, Bloodlines. Uh, sorry, uh, from the, the original Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, game. that was such a good game. Yeah, that was that really, was very- really good game. Yeah, I mean... I'm always, I just love the music in it. They really nailed the kind of feel of it. And just walking around the city at night and just like you could look up and just see the rain falling, which I mean, we're talking like, you know, late 90s, early 2000 graphics. Yep. So it wasn't the most, you know, visually stunning game, but, you know, immersiveness and storytelling was just fantastic. Some fantastic writing. Yeah, they just released the soundtrack, actually. Yeah. Okay, right. I know what I'm doing after this one. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that old. To be honest, I don't. You know, I, that being said, uh, obviously the RPG. I know the RPG. They were they were playing it in my uni when I was at university in two thousand. Uh, it's it just it just boggles my brain that that was that's twenty two years ago. And in my mind, two thousand was like yesterday. And uh, you know, <laughs> isn't the thirtieth anniversary of Vampire the Masquerade this year, twenty twenty two? I believe so. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so we were talk- talking about again, that's a few years ago. I mean, are you got anything planned for the 30th anniversary of, of Vampire and V5? Well, not, not V5. Uh, not, not that I'm aware of. Um, yeah. Okay. It's not, that's not, I'm not breaking by any NDAs by saying I, I've, I've no knowledge of, of any of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, cool. um, so uh, we, we, Pete was sort of uh, talking to you uh, before the podcast about your what you do as well uh with the security side of things mm. um can you can you talk us uh to, to us about that uh yeah sure no i mean i've never worked for any government government or governmental agencies uh i've strictly been an academic when it comes to counterterrorism um and um counterintelligence uh that's my uh, graduate degree i have a master's in international security policy from uh, columbia university uh, and my focus was, yeah, counterintelligence and uh, I guess what you would call um, third world security policy, especially in the Middle East and North Africa. Wow. Uh, I worked at the Middle East Institute uh, for about two years as their non-resident energy and security scholar. Oh. Okay. So, I mean, that's kind of massive, you know, just you know, one thing you would be talking about vampires and werewolves. On the other hand, you're writing about security policy. That's complete. Yeah. That's complete. How I, I mean, kind of, kind of. Well, um, 
In high school, uh, I mean, I didn't plan for this, but in high school, I read um, The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, uh, which is basically the history of oil. Yeah. Uh, and so it basically goes from the very start of oil as a natural resource uh, all the way to the modern day, uh, at least back in, I, I assume they've updated it by now. It's been a long time since high school. And at the same time, I read Dune uh, by Frank Herbert. Yeah. Uh, so I read those books side to side and they were very good companion pieces. Uh, one was about, you know, the real world exploitation, col colonialism and, you know, just the way our entire planet runs on um, these fossil fuels. Uh, and what that means for us uh, on several levels, not just economically, but environmentally and politically, uh, and why, you know, these countries that have these resources or are near these resources are constantly uh, being, you know, um, the word we use is penetrated, uh, constantly being penetrated by outside actors, usually Western powers, um, uh, European and American, because uh, they want what they have. And Dune very much explores that. And I worked on the Dune RPG, actually, the one that was just recently released. Oh, by wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I bring that up because I've always been interested in politics, human behavior, and uh, how we have to, as people, um, uh, you know, read between the lines of what's happening and what's presented to us. Because um, a lot of times things are presented to us like, oh, that's a... Uh, that's a violent part of the world or they don't have their, you know, stuff together over there uh, because of, you know, their religion or the way they're raised or their culture. And we don't talk about, you know, well, they were occupied by a foreign co country by 150 years because they wanted their gold or their oil or their diamonds. Uh, and so when those countries left, they left them in, you know, in ruins, uh, usually or strictly as, um, you know, suppliers of this resource with no other, you know, infrastructure. So for me, uh, it really spoke to this kind of um, not really hidden world, but it definitely showed that we have to um, be circumspect when we're presented with these ideas, whether in the media or from our governments, um, that there are people in this world that you know are in their desperate situations or positions because they somehow deserve it or it's their fault uh, without us thinking about you know the material circumstances they may have been in that were caused by outside actors products of their environment basically yeah well yeah i mean that's yeah that's a very that, that i mean i don't know if they if they say that over here but that's a very american term yeah 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 sorry Matt. oh uh, no i was gonna say it's uh it's it's very much the case that you know you can just blame people for and i, I try to think about it myself um you know if you're there's a lot of sort of oh, how do you put this without um small-mindedness um in uh in the uk in northern ireland where i'm from especially especially in small villages and things like that where it's like and they have views that sort of maybe more worldly people wouldn't hold because they they think but because they're products of their environment uh they all they have is what they know and um it it's sort of it's easy just to blame them for being you know them when really there's more to it uh you know uh you know schooling uh government uh everything like that and it's 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 all too easy just to um just blame or point fingers at when really there's there is a lot more depth to it and something that you need to sort of kind of bear in mind yeah. uh, and i'm by all means uh, not by all means i i'm i'm very <laughs> 
I, I'm guilty of pointing fingers, especially in Northern Ireland, quite a lot. Uh, mm. But I try my best to sort of kind of say, right, there is more to this than just, you know, what it is, what the, what the yeah. facade is, what the front of it is. Yeah, I, th- I think there's like too much, uh, it's too easy to simplify com- what is a complex problem. Yes. I think the sound bites. Yeah. Would, that be, would yeah. that be fair, Captain? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean... I think uh, the the main way I um, I guess I run into it uh, is that in the U.S. Uh, there is not a lot of emphasis on critical analysis of you know the media we consume yeah. uh, in our schooling and in our society. It's kind of seen as um, I guess uh, snooty or putting on airs that kind of thing, which is seen as bad. Uh, and that's something reinforced by you know the media society uh, here. Uh, so it's almost a feature. It's not a bug uh, of our school system that critical analysis is just not something that children engage in uh, and will not engage in until they're out of high school uh, on a real level. Like at best, they'll read Catcher of the R- in the Rye in high school uh, and, you know, get whatever terrible message they get out of that um, without a lot of real, you know, in-depth thinking on, well, what does this mean? What is behind the words? What is the subtext? Uh, and that can be very difficult as a writer, uh, because a lot of times, uh, you don't, and especially in a role-playing game, like Vampire the Masquerade or, or even Dune or even Cthulhu, but especially in Vampire the Masquerade, where you don't want to spell things out. You want to leave shadowy gray areas so that players and storytellers can explore those areas. Um, but, it can be difficult when some of your audience just, you know, is just not used to reading any subtext or the implications of things. They take the word as written as, you know, I guess what people call canon uh, or law. And that's that. Um, And, you know, that's not their fault. uh, And it can lead to gatekeeping behavior and all that. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons V5 very much doesn't put the lore center stage. Uh, that it's a, a background uh, issue, um, is so the subtext in some way can become text. I have to say, one of my biggest pet peeves, I did a, I did a military history degree, and it personally helped me quite a lot. Because uh, doing history, you have to look at both sides of the side yeah. of the sort of story basically or you, and the motivations of the author. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's, you know... Um, I'm trying to think of examples. Um, there's, there's a, there's a, some books, and the name of the author completely uh, escapes me. I was very much into sort of Napoleonic uh, history and stuff, and mm. um, you had the the Battle of Waterloo, and um, you know it's 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 deemed as this big British big British victory. You know we 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 beat the French and you know uh, and won the war and stuff. And then there's a set of books, and it's called Waterloo Campaign: The German Victory, and it's basically about because most of the British, a lot of the British army were King's German Legion. And then obviously you had the Prussians, you had Hanoverians, you had a lot of Germans and they don't get their sort of, um, you know, it's just seen as a British victory, not as a sort of a German victory. And I kind of like when people do that sort of thing, they sort of kind of, they they flip the sort of, uh, the, what's the word, the... The, the known not the known history this sort of canonical history and kind of go well this is this is kind of what it is and doing my history degree it was very much a case of so this is what you're told 
But is there another side to it? And we used to have a we used to have a a professor who would sort of go right. You are, I don't know. He, he sort of like one example. He did one. He says World War Two. You're the Allies. You're the Nazis. What's happening? What are you? Why are you doing this and stuff? And like you had the art. You know, I I wasn't on the Nazi side, but it was just basically you had to basically make an art, even though you 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 fundamentally disagreed with everything they were about. It was all about making you being able to see the other side of the, the proverbial coin, as it were. Um, and this is the long way around to my point. Um, I I really hate it when you have history movies come out and they portray things that are completely wrong. And it's like, you know, Hollywood's really bad at, you know, historical films sometimes. And they just go, yeah. this is how it is. <laughs> and people, because... They just don't want to learn any different. They don't want to know any differently. They just kind of they want to be spoon fed that they're going okay. Yeah, that's the way it is. And you have people arguing with me about history and stuff, and I was like, but that's that's not how it is. It might have been in that film, like Bravehearts. A Bravehearts a, a a prime example of just historical blasphemy and stuff. But it's just like you know, this is you know, this is this is what happened. Is it? It's not what. <laughs> It's not what happened, and that's not the way he was, and blah 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 blah. But people just want to believe that, and that that frustrates me slightly because, you know, people will just read it or will just watch it, and they will take that as canon and not go any any deeper. And I yeah. personally think a lot of the world's woes would be fixed if people could see a bit more on the other side of the coin. Um, you know, unfortunately countries you live in nearly every single country irrespective of your um your, your sort of maybe recent uh neutrality or uh you know known for being uh a a, a good country in inverted commas you've probably done a lot of bad shit in your past and you know people completely gloss over that and i think it's very much something that people need to understand and accept especially in the uk you know it's you, we've done, we've done a lot of a lot of bad stuff in the past and you know you just have to accept it that's that's something you've done doesn't mean you have to dwell on it doesn't mean you have to um uh not be a bit apologetic for it but you you need to understand that was where you came from and this is who you are now and i think you know, having stuff where people are just sort of spoon-fed it is frustrating because it, it it sort of paints a picture that isn't real, uh, and and that's I think where you get really sort of strong. This is completely off topic, by the way. I'm sorry, apologies. I should have gone off on a, a bit of a rant, but you get you you go off on these sort of like, um, you get very sort of strong nationalistic and, and patriotic views based on one-sided stories, and I think you know you need to look at things deep more deeply if you find something personally if i learned something if you were to tell me something i go that's interesting and i would go out and i would pick the article that argues the counter just so i have a an even sort of view on that and yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) matt rant yeah matt rant no matt rant yeah just very uh yeah Yeah. i mean like i much like no critical analysis uh, plays an important role for you in in like in in many ways in both sides of your uh writing career both as energy security and also in in rpgs you kind of have to kind of balance everything out very much so i'm sorry I i didn't hear the first part Oh, sorry, I might say critical analysis plays an important role for uh, you in both sides of your um, career. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, for uh, you know, strictly on the RPG side, I can say that um, 
people have to buy into this reality. Uh, and this reality has certain rules. And that, that is really the power of lore. And, and you really see it nowadays in video games that usually the video games that have the strongest following and the most dedicated followings are the ones that have uh, some kind of lore, whether that's you know Five Nights at Freddy's or Undertale or what have you, Dark Souls. Uh, they have an interesting story uh, internally that you can that you yourself can internalize while playing the game and that will affect how you play in a sense because you've internalized certain ideas and roles um and so i can understand why on some level there can be like a, a fear of not having enough lore or that your lore doesn't mismatch is mismatched somehow with the lore of the internal lore of the other people playing because then you get the sense that you're not playing the same game you're not playing the same you know mental world uh, and yeah, and critical analysis uh, is very important because you have to basically, while writing, say, well, what would this character, what would this Lasombra think about the Sabbat basically trying to erase clan identity? You know, as a Lasombra who's stayed in the Sabbat and is no, you know, not going to join the Camarilla like some of his fellows, like how is he going to um, think about the Sabbat's kind of push that clan doesn't matter? from coming from a clan who used to be on top and is now kind of on the bottom. Is he gonna like that? Is he gonna hate that? And you know, what what is gonna be his process when he comes to his conclusion? Uh, and in our book on the vault, we, we do that with all the clans. We kind of have a section called anti-tribu because uh, the Sabbat basically believes that, you know, clan identity is bad um, and that they're all, you know, just vampires under Cain um, and Lilith and all that. Uh, but how does that work? What do the clans and members of that clan think about that? And we, and we break that down clan by clan. And, and that requires a lot of critical analysis and thought of the old lore and the current lore. Uh, and it's important because in a sense, um, even in our daily lives, we live in a virtual world. We live in a world that's not real. Like we don't go and hunt our food. We don't build our houses. We don't do any of that stuff. There's a lot of stuff that we do say, think, which is based upon um, an image of reality, but not reality. Like when a news reporter tells us something, we are taking it on faith that they're not lying to us. We don't. We never witness these car accidents. We don't witness these plane crashes, or terrorist atrocities, whatnot. Um, and no, nor probably would you want to. Uh, but you have. But if you trust the system and take it on faith, then you're living in that reality where those things occurred with everyone else. And that's why it can be very jarring to meet someone who has a different idea of the lore than you do, because it's almost like meeting someone who believes in a conspiracy theory in the <laughs> real world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, that, so someone who doesn't know, you know, all the vampire lore that you know from 20, 30 years of playing vampire, when they start talking about vampire, you're like, well, no, that's, you know, that the message with your internal logic, their vision of reality. And, and that can be, that can be difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was reading the the One Ring role playing game called Rulebook um, today, and it came up with a great idea for law, which is assume everything before is by an unreliable narrator. Right. Yeah. And I thought that was genius because I mean, like the actually they brought the the writing cadres gave an example of um, Dwalin in the fellowship of the ring not fellowship of the ring sorry in the hobbit he goes from being saved by um a hobbit from the trolls to at the end of the book being this kind of axe wielding um fury berserker 
Right. And it kind of, kind of like, well, how did that happen? And said, or maybe it was because this is a book that was written by Bilbo Baggins. And he, it was his version of the events that happened. And basically any version is purely from a single perspective and is not sort of like the neutral third party. Oh, is this to stop you getting bogged down in sort of Lord of the Rings lore and stuff? Exactly. And I think like, though, it's kind of, that's what you need to do with any sort of established law is really kind of approach it as like, did it happen or maybe it could have happened like this? Right. Yeah. I mean, you always have to think of um, who is telling me this. Yeah. And if you don't have an answer to the who is telling you that, then you have to assume that that narrator has a reason for hiding their identity and therefore their biases. Uh, and once you do that, like um, in our book, we make some changes, not really changes, but there's some parts of Tremere lore we don't want to delve into in our book uh, that were presented mostly in Dark Ages and a few clan novels. Um, and so we wanted to give permission I guess is the best way to play it to players and STs to um, consider that stuff unreliable. So we found ways not necessarily to change the lore, but to make things more ambiguous. Um, like we we refer to uh, Goratrix, uh, the famous Tremere betrayer of the Sabbat. Uh, we talk about the house Goratrix in the book and how Tremere and the Tribu work and, and all that. Uh, and we present Goratrix with um, she, they pronouns, while traditionally, um, they were presented as strictly, you know, male, he, him pronouns in some of the old books. Um, but there's a lot of lore associated with Goratrix, which is very um, problematic, um, could be considered, you know, misogynistic or even homophobic on some levels. Um, that we really didn't want to move forward into our book, um, you know, and I don't know how V5 officially is going to deal with that material. Um, they, they haven't, I guess they haven't touched it. You know, maybe I don't know why. Uh, so, but we didn't want to bring that forward into our book while making Goratrix uh, such an important character in the book. I mean, they're not on every page or anything, but there's a lore sheet, you know, about them and, and, and they're mentioned. Um, so we wanted to fuzzy things up uh, and present the character in a way um, that made more sense. Also, uh, you know, the name is, uh, you know, is, is feminine in most, you know, language conjugates. So, you know, it, it is what it is on, on that level. Uh, but the, but we never reveal their gender. Like we reveal their pronouns, but you know not their gender. Um, so hopefully that won't be too big of a controversy. <laughs> yeah, I remember like Mage the and the M twenty line kind of took the um, rather than kind of baking in like you know, the law said they basically gave three interpretations of each law element. I was supposed great like you know, and how it would impact the game. For example, got, it was the um, future fate section where it went like. The Avatar Storm, is it still here? Yes, okay, then there's this happen. Is it still here, but milder? Yes, and this happens. Is it still here? No, it just passed, and now we can get into the Umbra and beyond without any problems. So it kind of, it really kind of give two different, like three different or interpretations of each element of the law. Right, yeah, I mean, you can't have everything, you know, um, yeah. like uh, in, you know, revised, uh, there was uh, the withering. Yeah, which is talked about in the clan novels mostly, um, isn't really discussed so much um, in the actual RPGs. Um, but basically, uh, you know, kind of a, a flip side of the beckoning, where instead of the elders disappearing, they're getting you know weaker, and the curse of Cain on some level has like weakened, so um, the vampiric powers in general are weaker. Um, like that, as far as I understand, is not mentioned at all in V five. No. Um, you know. 
but it was something that was represented in the clan novels was an issue was kind of the forefront of Gehenna. And of course, you know, in older editions, they do Gehenna, like, you know, <laughs> the Antediluvians appear and start eating people um, and, you know, close down the whole shop to create a Requiem. So obviously that's not touched upon um, in V5. Um, this isn't a, uh, in a sense, it's not a post Gehenna war. It's a, you know, it's a, sorry, post Gehenna world. It's a Gehenna world. Like this is, this is what the world looks like as Gehenna begins, in a sense. Um, yeah. With, uh, again, back to me being a complete noob and not understanding, mm -hmm. uh, the Sabbat, you're saying, like, are effectively the bad guys, inverted commas. Um, are they... So the, the whole game is, like, you're trying to keep your humanity and you're trying to, um, you know, not be known as a vampire by the, the, the general public and stuff. Are they completely against that? Are they just literally, I'm a, I'm a fucking vampire and they just go out and eat people and stuff or uh, train them a blood? Yeah, I mean, um, so I worked on a Requiem book uh, back in the day called Belial's Brood. And Belial's Brood had the same kind of thing where they were the bad guy vampires and, you know, they didn't care about, you know, hiding and they wanted to be vampires and blah, blah, blah. Um, and how does that work? Uh, when we made it, you know, a playable faction in Requiem. So basically one thing that we kind of hit upon in Bilal's Brood, and I, and I feel the Sabbat book in some ways hits upon it as well, which is that they don't care about, you know, mortals. And in some senses, they don't even care about other vampires. So they're not out there breaking the masquerade to break the masquerade. Like, they don't particularly care about the masquerade. Um, they will hide when it suits their agenda. Uh, but breaking the masquerade is not their goal. Uh, taking over the moral world now is not their goal. That's, you know, after the Antiluvians are defeated. Um, you know, the first step of taking over the world is, you know, killing the people who control it today, uh, which, you know, shouldn't be surprising. Uh, and as far as the Camry and Anarchs are concerned, they only seek them out when it's in their larger interest. They no longer get into this, like, you know, piddling fisticuffs just to, like, prove a point or whatnot. So the idea is... Um, their concern are vampiric concerns, not their past mortal identity. So their concerns are destroying the Antediluvians. And if there's a Camrya vampire or an Anarch vampire they think might be related to or know the location of a Methuselah or some other elder vampire, then that guy is on their target list. But they're not going to roll into a Camarilla city and start burning buildings uh, just to, like, you know, get the TV cameras rolling because that doesn't that doesn't interest them. Um, they have um, a goal in mind. Uh, and as far as um, a side point to your question, which is V5 is focused on, you know, humanity and the beast and all that. We kept all those V5 systems in the, the black hand playing the Sabbat because they're so elegant. You know, the hunger system, the touchstone system, even the humanity system, it's all in there still. But the way we redeveloped it because uh, we don't we don't want to get back into path ratings and all that and you spending experience to like be more on your path. We, we didn't really feel that served any goal other than giving you a sink for your really hard won experience points. Um, so what we did is we redefined humanity for a Sabbat vampire. Once you're on a path, your humanity is no longer your moral compass or any of that stuff. It is strictly a rating of your ability to retain your personal mortal identity. So. We are on a path as your humanity rating sinks, your ability to kind of remember who you were as a mortal degrades. Uh, as MSA with a humanity of two probably would no longer remember their original mortal face after, you know, shifting it around so many times over the years. 
Um, and for touchstones, which are usually living people and can only be living people in the base game, in our book, we basically replace them with the righte. So once you get a path conviction, you have to link it up with a sabbat rite, one of their sacred rituals. And if those rites are disrupted, uh, disrespected, threatened, if implements central to those rites, such as the Baldry chalice or whatnot, or the sacred weapons used in a monomancy are, are stolen or destroyed, they harm you just the way it would if a touchstone was. Um, so, so we wanted to keep all those elegant systems um, and give reasons why the Sabbat could operate and not just, you know, whoa, the masquerade's broken because you're playing Sabbat um, uh, without it breaking the internal logic of the game. Right. Yeah, good. No, there's almost sort of like a, a tactical reason uh, for uh, not breaking the masquerade in the technical sense, because with the second Inquisition out there, these uh, the global um security services and targeting blank bodies like no because we you know vampires do not generate heat signatures uh like no with the firepower that a second inquisition team can lay down or more accurately where like very special forces groups can lay down do the, do the Sabbat really want to start antagonizing and having a fight on two fronts against the mephalusas and the kind of the global intelligence agencies as well it's just not a tactical logical sense it does not make tactical sense uh, again this is i'm this i i'm because I'm, I'm i'm interested yeah. i'm learning who are these other people are they what was the name of them the second inquisition the... no 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 the, what, what, you, you meant you, they were sort of going against the uh begin for the, begin the with... methaluses Antediluvians. Yes, yeah yeah that's it yeah who are they oh they're the founders of the vampire clans basically so they're they may be fa they may be mythological, they may be real, but there are vampire clans. They're pretty distinct and obvious, and not only mechanically enforced but thematically enforced in the story. Uh, and so, the first vampires who started those strains, those bloodlines, are called the Antediluvians, the the vampires who came before the flood, as described in the in the Bible, basically. All right. Uh, they're also known as the third generation, the progenitors, that kind of thing. Um, they're they're kind of ancestor worshipped in parts of the Camarilla. They're considered a myth by most other vampires. And in the Sabbat, not only are they real, but they're basically immortal, unstoppable, unkillable blood gods that they will have to find some, you know, mythological or divine or, or profane loophole to kill. Yeah, I mean, they have, well, maybe possibly technically killed one of them with... Um... Zapafrusa, the Ravnos Antediluvian. Right. Well, I mean, in the Week of Nightmares lore That's sheet it. and the write-up and the lore, um, it's presented as, you know, the originator of the Ravnos clan uh, and the new Ravnos clan discipline has to do with, like, you know, if you sleep in one place too often, you, you burn up. Um, so that's that's kind of the... Uh, that's kind of the implication, but whether that was actually the Ravno Sanded Luvian or not is you know, is never truly confirmed. But that that is what people say. Um, so yeah. So, but as far as the Sabbat is concerned, you know, Antediluvians cannot be killed and have not been killed. Um, uh, as you know, as far as our book, I should say. Yeah. Uh, in the Storyteller's Vault. Um, so in official canon, they don't really. Um, talk about too much in the V5 Sabbat book. I actually did write the section uh, of the Antediluvians as a thematic element, and uh, I use a lot of those seeds to kind of expand upon in you know our community content book. 
which is basically like, how do you kill something that can't die? Um, we also kind of delve into the Lasombra, how they defected from the Sabbat. And perhaps one of the reasons they defected is because of this whole, is because their conceit to leadership that they killed their antediluvian was a lie. And now everybody knows it. And so by being exposed in that way, their leadership was now contested on all ends. And, you know, Sombra being La Sombra, they decided they would rather be somebody else's shadow. Um, and once the light was shined on them, they disappeared. Um, so uh, it is an interesting concept of how do you keep people fighting what you admit is an unwinnable war? Um, and what are their thought processes? You know, what, what is their faith like um, to do that? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, um, do you have any plans for V5 and and other role-playing games plans for the future? Yes, well, um, the second Inquisition book, which I wrote on, um, which, you know, yet again, let me use some of my real-world uh, experience, yeah. is coming out as, uh, with Cat Evans and uh, Kenneth Height. Uh, and I believe Kenneth as I, I believe Kenneth also has a, a background in, you know, international affairs and as such. And of course he wrote, you know, Knights Black Agents and several other books that That's deal. a fantastic game. It is a really good book and other like paramilitary operations funding vampires. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's coming out in a, I think in March, mid-March. Um, so that's a V5, you know, canon official book. And I think that should be pretty interesting. Is uh, that, is the Second Inquisition as a playable antagonist or is it purely a storytelling antagonist? Uh, it's purely, a, that book is purely storyteller. Not, I, that's the book is storyteller focused. The Second Inquisition is presented as antagonist. There are no rules in there to play a Second Inquisition Hunter. Hunter 5th Edition is coming out. That's true. Um, but of course that focuses on, um, you know, more, not I won't say street level, but definitely on more individual groups of hunters, not the Second Inquisition, which is basically yeah, a, a global conspiracy which is misusing um, government resources <laughs> to yeah. hunt vampires uh, and do other things. Because as with all mortal institutions, um, especially those you know, in a legal global conspiracy, uh, they are not going to use those powers just to hunt vampires once they have on them. They have their own interests um, that they're going to go about. And, you know, that can uh, I'm sure that blunts their efficiency in the whole vampire hunting thing. Did you ever watch the BBC six part TV series called uh, Ultraviolet? Not not the Mila Jovovich film, the 90s uh, TV I've, series. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. And I know it's been um, I've actually it actually has been referenced to me a few oh. times, uh, but I don't actually uh, think I've ever seen it. No, I don't think so. It's it's a fantastic TV series. It's basically, what if um, there was a uh, government sanctioned department of mi5 tasked with hunting vampires and oh, and it was great because i mean it was like it was like how do you kill someone that is effectively unkillable right. and, and they never mentioned vampires they never used the v word it's always like code fives because roman numeral five is v and just really neat touches uh, of like on what it would mean as a person to go around and hunt a vampire that is not believed so right. yes, if you get the chance, really do recommend it. Absolutely love that TV series. Yeah, I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to check it out. And um, and as far as the storytellers' vaults concerned, we're you know hoping you know we've had very good success with this book so far. Um, you know, very good. Uh, our reviews are very good, and 
Uh, I think it's hit a uh, it hit Electrum Seller, which is uh, oh, a uh, benchmark on Friday, and uh, it's only been out I guess two and a half weeks. So we were very happy with that. So building off of that, we're gonna write some scenarios, some like adventures where you you know for Sabat packs. Uh, we've contacted some other you know authors who've worked uh, on uh, the Vault before and on Vampire, and we're talking with them to see how they can basically use what's in our book so that there will be adventures to play as Sabat packs. So, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel um, if you're new to Vampire or new to the Sabat. Could we also expect a player's guide to Second Inquisition, maybe? <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Uh, that that would be a, that would be a very thick book, I think. Um, right. So I'm not quite sure. I would have to find a lot more than just two other <laughs> authors um, uh, for that. You know, for this book, I reached out to... Um, Siskiya Lytic um, and uh, Rachel Judd um, yeah. to, to help me write this because that they've both um, you know Siskiya I've worked with her on a, on several projects including V5 projects though I think we're on NDA for those and um, Rachel of course has worked on um, uh, Chronicle of the Darkness books and she's has a lot of books on the Vault I mean uh, incredible uh, bibliography on the Vault um, so. Uh, I, you know, I, I got the right team together uh, for the second Inquisition. I don't even, I don't even know who I would ask. Yeah, I don't know if your bookshelf would take a book that big, Pete. It's, it, it's buckling as it is. I think <laughs> you can, oh, see, yeah. you can see, the, probably, you can yeah, see the so, bow. You, know, you they can won't see. Let the... us print on the vault, so no fears. <laughs> the bookshelf will be all right. I'll make space. I'll make space. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I remember reading like the the the, the called V five book and thinking. The second, yeah, the vampires sound great, but the second, second Inquisition sound fantastic. So I think, yeah, we'd like to get into something like that. But again, as you say, we have the V5, not the V5, the Hunter's Fist Edition coming out at some point. But that is, again, more independent groups rather than a, a global security network. But yeah, so, so and it, other than V5, what else have you got planned coming up? Uh, for V5, I don't think anything I, – I have written some stuff, but I'm under NDA uh, other than the Second Inquisition book there. Uh, hopefully those projects will be announced soon. Um, I think there's some announcement planned in the next few weeks, but I, I'm not quite sure if it's for that book. But, uh, yeah, no, there is there is a lot more V5 material coming out. I mean Renegade and PDX have a lot of interesting things coming out and not just books i know uh new york by night the uh, actual play the Ooh, yeah. kind of uh not i don't i want to say sequel but definitely the follow-up to la by night um you know jason carl's incredible um uh, actual play uh, of uh you know uh, v5 uh so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that and you know what that does with all this new material because i mean he started la by night uh you know when there weren't a lot of v5 yeah. books on the shelves you know so I'm sure he had some, you know, insight to the meta plot from behind the scenes, of course. Uh, but it's a lot easier to follow along and add stuff to the story when people have, you know, the books. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. You know. So, uh, <laughs> so Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, Sabat the Black Hand is currently out now. Yes, yes. Sabat the Black Hand is currently out now. Uh, you can buy that, uh, you know, from the Renegade store or the Storyteller's Vault. And our Storyteller's Vault book, um, The Black Hand Playing the Sabat, uh, you know, uh, not to confuse anyone. Uh, <laughs> the Player's uh, Guide. Uh, yeah, The Player's Guide, let's say, uh, is also on the Storyteller's Vault. And there's a lot of very good Sabat content on the Storyteller's Vault. I mean, obviously, I, I love my book the most. Uh, but there are several, uh, there was a real hunger for it by the fans. So there's several books um, on there as well, yeah. 
Um, okay, give them, give them a, give them a, a go. Uh, I have to say, I'm quite interested. It's like I, I, Pete sort of kind of dragging me into this sort of thing. So I had Mage. <laughs> I've had Mage one one week, and now I've got sort of uh, Vampire the Masquerade another. So uh, yeah, I have to have. I'll one. get. Don't worry, I'll get. I'll get someone someone from Werewolf lined up next, Matt. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, it's been really interesting talking to you. Apologies again for the um, for the uh, the dropout in the middle there, but uh, hopefully it will all be stitched together when I. Well, uh, I wouldn't have believed you guys were in the UK if there weren't weather problems. So you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, uh, hashtag weather UK. You know, just just the way it is. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, for tonight, I've been Matt Geary. With me has been Peter Allison. Good night, everybody. Take care of each other. And Kaldun Khalil. Ah, bye. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye. bye. bye.